Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of Horror, Wine, and Crime with KK and Lo. We're coming back with Lo's crazy part two story. So fingers crossed, hopefully it doesn't turn into a part three. Um, there's a lot of shit with this stuff. But yes, it's a story of manic, depression, psychotic, crazy, all the things wrapped up into this. So much information. Um some of it weird, some of it funny, some of it like, what in the hell? Like, it's all of it. Um, but a quick recap, if you... Literally hits all last... the points. <laughs> right. Um, if you didn't listen last week, um, a little bit of a catch up. Catch. Uh-huh. Uh, Good one. Because it's linked to Catcher and the Rye. Um, it's like, is it a conspiracy or just a coincidence? Um this book has been linked to so many different things. Um, and while a lot of it is, I don't think the book is causing people to murder, but it just happens to be coincidence that the book is on the copies of the books are with the people. Um, so it's just kind of a fun little connection, I guess. Um, You're going to see a lot of different connections between two stories, a little bit of hidden Easter eggs and stuff, a little ding, ding, ding moments. So I thought that was kind of cool, too, just uh, how they kind of so much coincidence between the two of them. Um, And then also just a fun little fun fact. Um, Have you ever seen the movie Conspiracy Theory with Mel Gibson and Julia Roberts? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't think so. Probably not because it's a 97 and you're a two. So you probably missed that one. But he is, Mel Gibson is kind of crazy, not in a bad way, but just, you know, um, and he's got all these conspiracy theories um, with the government and all those different things and everything. And there's a scene where they talk about Catcher in the Rye. Julia Roberts is trying to, like, help him. Um, but it was kind of interesting. Well, Jerry, you have to check it out. dozen copies of this book. I know. Yeah, I know, I know. I... There's more of it in here. And uh, under the bed, too. I don't know why, 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 but I am. Uh, whenever I see one, I have to buy it. And I don't. And if I don't see one, well, then I have to find one to buy so that I feel normal. <laughs> I, I don't know why. <clears throat> Did you ever read it? Yeah, you, you read this in school. No one ever gave it to me to read in school. I, that's what they, they start when you're young, you know. When you're little, they get to school, they, they bait and pow all the boys, and they Betty Crocker all the girls, and they in the air condition, yeah. They put you in an easy bake oven, and you can't breathe it. <laughs> you must think I'm crazy, huh? <clears throat> but that was... uh. 
a scene from Conspiracy Theory with Julia Roberts and Mel Gibson. If you haven't seen the movie, I'd recommend going back and watching it. It's an actual good movie, but I may be biased because everybody knows I love Julia Roberts. She's my girl. Oh, same. So I'll probably love it too. Um, so continuing on, we are moving on to John Hinckley Jr. Um, and it's another little bit of a roller coaster. So are you all buckled up? I am double buckled for this one. <laughs> okay. The day is March 30th, 1981. It's just 69 days after Ronald Reagan took over being president in the United States. Mr. Reagan was talking amongst 5,000 members of the AFL-CIO, and that was in front of the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. He was leaving, and he was ready to go back to his hotel when a gentleman had yelled his name, Mr. President, and he turned around to watch a man go down into combat squat and start firing off a 22 caliber. Suspects, the suspect got six shots out before he was tackled by a Secret Service man for Ronald Reagan. Luckily, there was multiple injuries, but nobody did die. The gentleman, Timothy McCarthy, who literally took the bullet for Mr. Reagan, managed to survive. However, he is paralyzed on his right side of his body, and the bullet did go through the side above his eye, but he did manage to survive. Wow. Who would want to assassinate Ronald Reagan? Like, and why the president? Like, it had nothing to do with political reasons, if you believe that or not. Um, instead, it had more to do with impressing a beautiful young actress. An obsession, if you will. An obsession with Miss Jodie Foster. Now you're probably like, but how does that get there? Like Ronald Reagan, assassination, Jodie Foster. She's not political. Like, how does this even connect? I'm going to tell y'all how it connects, okay? So John Hinckley Jr. was born in Oklahoma, Oklahoma in 1955 on May 29th. He was the youngest of three children. He had... Joanne and John Hinckley Sr., they were his parents. Um, his dad went by Jack because, you know, John and John, which I always find it funny. They always named their so sons juniors, but then they change one of the names so they don't get I know. I'm like, why people. not just originally make it a different name then? <laughs> his mom was just, uh, you know, stay at home, Betty Crocker, take care of the kids, homemaker type. And his dad was a businessman who also became president and chairman of the Vanderbilt Energy Corporation. Uh, so their family was pretty much a wholesome, normal, average American family. You know, they did okay financially. The siblings of John, they were probably a little bit more outgoing. John was the more shy one. He wasn't bullied. He didn't really get made fun of. He was just more quiet. He did have friends. He got along well with people. He was actually voted an elementary school basketball player of the year. And he basically just, you know, had a normal childhood. No major trauma there. Uh, it did say that his dad worked a lot. His mom was, like I said, the homemaker. It was noted that there wasn't a lot of affection in the household. So 
there wasn't a lot of like the hugs and kisses, the tucking in, the good night, the cuddling, that kind of stuff. Uh, it did state that his dad, Jack, said that he hugged his son after the assassination attempt, which a little late on that, dad. <laughs> I was about to say, a little too late there. Uh, then the first time he said he could remember, that was the first time he said he could remember hugging his son. And John was 25 years old at the time. Now, unfortunately, the family did move around a lot due to Jack's job. When he was in sixth grade, they moved to Dallas, Texas, but they had a big house. It had all the things, including a really big swimming pool, which, again, that's going to help John be like the popular cool kid. Everyone's going to want to hang out at your house, you know. Um, and of course, he was really liked. Uh, he was actually voted school council president in seventh grade and ninth grade. He also became manager of his school football team. So he was active in school. He participated in activities. Uh, he did by no means sit at home. He wasn't a powder. He was a doer. Also in middle school is where John um, fell for guitar. He loved to play the guitar. So him being shy, though, and people looking at him and staring at him, he wasn't big into like performing for people. So it was more just like in his room as a hobby. Uh, he wasn't trying to like go big with it or anything. That being said, he started to isolate himself a little bit more and more. Some people would say that might be where his troubles started. Um, but it's hard to say because he didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. He didn't have a girlfriend. He would just sit in his room, play his guitar. And this is where he found his love. Wait for it. The Beatles and John Lennon. Weird. Ding, 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 ding. Right? Going back to Chapman. Coincidence Crazy. number one. But yeah, um, he didn't cause too much trouble. He just isolated himself. He would shut down. He didn't really hang out. He didn't play sports anymore. He just collected Beatle Mobilia, and he listened to his album. He played his guitar, and he just chilled. Clearly, Jack hated it. He thought his son was lazy and lethargic, and this was, like, maybe the beginning of his depressions. Was he depressed? Was something bigger going on? You know, it's the 70s, so there's a lot of different perspectives back then. Um so now it's 1973, and it's the year after John graduates high school, and Jack gets another job, and this time they have to move to Evergreen, Colorado, which is a very uh, fancy upscale suburb. It's off of Denver. John told his family he was not going to go. He was going to Lubbock, Texas to go to college. So he attended Texas Tech, but that only lasted a year. Then he moved back to Dallas. And he lived with his sister for about a year. And then he went back to college to Texas Tech. But then he got hit with a different situation. He got assigned a black roommate. And that did not go over well for John. His parents would go on to say that they never showed any kind of racism or bigotry in the household. So they don't know where he got that from. But I mean, even if they did, are they going to admit it? Like, Right. They're probably not going to outright just say that. But yeah, John was not happy about that. 
Um, he even started really blatantly and openly would read books about white supremacists. And I'm sure his roommate found that amazingly confident to go home to watching his roommate read, you know, white supremacist books in his bed. <laughs> Awkward. Sleep with one eye open, dude. Gosh. So 1976, John had enough of college and he's changing paths. So instead, he's going to move to California and he's going to become a songwriter singer. So apparently he must be getting over his fears. But something happens when he gets to California, something he wasn't expecting, something that would change the course of his life. He went and he saw a movie, Taxi Driver, starring Robert De Niro and Sybil Shepard and Jodie Foster. By the way, Jodie Foster is 12 years old at the time of this movie. Now, if you guys haven't seen the movie Taxi Driver, it is a old movie. I think it was 86 or 87 it came out. No, I take that back. It was 76, I think I said it came out. And so it's about this taxi driver, Robert De Niro, uh, Travis Bickle, and he's suffering from insomnia. He's disturbed. He's a loner. Um, he takes a job in New York City as a cabbie, um, and he's just driving around increasingly every night, again, detached from reality as he dreams of cleaning up the filthy city. Uh, when Travis meets a pretty campaign worker, Betsy, who was Sybil Shepherd, he becomes obsessed with the idea of saving the world. First plotting to assassinate presidential candidate, ding, 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 and then directing his attentions towards rescuing 12-year-old prostitute Iris, Jodie Foster. So it's a little bit of a darker movie, at least definitely for the 70s, I guess. Um, and he tries to woo Sybil Shepard. He asks her out and she was like, okay, you know, there's a little bit of like fun tension there. Um, but then unfortunately he takes her to an X-rated movie. And I just got to say, like, he thought that was going to impress her. I don't know why, but I don't think that's the route to go. No, I would have had the same. That don't impress me much. <laughs> yeah, same. That would not have <laughs> that effect on me. <laughs> so, Charles Bickle, he, uh, he's like, dang, you know, he goes back down into this dark hole and he ends up setting his sights on Iris, um, 12-year-old prostitute, and decides to make it his mission to save her from New York. Um, side note, um, there is, I wouldn't even call it a sex scene. It looks like it was about to get there, but there was no sex in the movie. Um, it's just the back. Um, that was actually Jodie Foster's older sister stepping in to do that scene for her. Because Oh, interesting. Again, no. Jodie was 12, so these men are older. <laughs> Legalities. <laughs> Um, I did get to finally see the famous, like, you talking to me? You talking to me? It was kind of weird, but it's kind of, that scene is actually a little bit kind of funny because he's just like talking to me. So funny because I always knew that that was like a famous line made by him, but I literally never knew it came from that movie. And when I was watching this movie, 
and that scene happened, I was like, what the heck? I didn't know that was in here. So fun little things, right? We're learning stuff through these stories. Um, so again, it's 1976 and the movie comes out. John sees it and immediately becomes obsessed with this movie. He went and seen it 15 times. I mean, I get it. I went and seen Buffy the Vampire Slayer in theaters quite a bit, okay? But, I mean, Vampire Slayer, Luke Perry, comedy vampires. I mean, anyways, you can see where I'm going with the difference, right? A little different. But also, this is where he becomes obsessed with Iris, the 12-year-old prostitute, um, Jodie Foster. So, again, Jodie's 12 years old, um, but through the obsession, I think, like, where he really started to get obsessed with her, she was in college, so I thank God she was older. <laughs> um, but, yeah, so... They also state that maybe some of the obsession with Jodie Foster, um, his mom's name is Joanne, but a lot of her friends called her Jodie. So they thought it could be maybe be some mommy issues. But I don't know. I would think if it was mom issues, he would date somebody older, not younger. Right. So I don't know. But that I that's just my humble opinion. But I guess it could go either way. So his family is still back in Colorado and he calls to check in and he tells them that he's got some great news. He's super excited. He's got a girlfriend. He's been seeing Linda Collins and she was visiting here in California when they met and he's like super happy. It wasn't until after his assassination attempt that they found out that Linda was actually a figment of his imagination and it was based off of Iris from Taxi Driver. Cuckoo. <laughs> He would also tell them that his music career was starting to boom and he's about to get an agent and he wrote a song and things are going great physically, which was also a lie. I wish I could have had more deliver that. Shortly <laughs> after that, it's 1976 and he's realizing he cannot make it. Um, and he thinks it's also time that maybe he moves back home with his parents for a while. So he did that, but he only stayed until 1977, in which reality is probably just a few months. Um, after hating his job as a busboy, he decided he hates Colorado. He's going back to California. So he moves back to Cali. And that's still like, it's not working. He's struggling. He's having a hard time making it. So he says, okay, I'm going to go back to school, back to Texas, back to college. But if he's going to go back to college, he's also got to change his major. So he decides to go for English. So this is probably the beginning of the spiraling for John. Uh, he didn't have any friends. He was a loner. He was always alone. He stated he was going to the health clinic like every day. He went for like an ear infection, dizzy, not feeling good. Something was always wrong and something always made him have to go to the doctor's. Uh, this is where he would start fantasizing about Travis Bickle, um, about his life and how he wanted to be Travis. He would ask himself, like, what would Travis Bickle do? And he thought, guns. 
That's what he would do. He collected guns. So he went and he started to buy and collect guns just like Travis. So now it's 1980. People Magazine come across uh, and he finds out that Jodie Foster is now attending Yale. Cool. <laughs> so, so John thinks to himself, well, you know what this means? We need to move to New Haven. And he makes his way to Yale University. But before he goes back home, he goes, but before that, he goes back home to Colorado for a while. It's just not, you know, turning out in California for him. And he tells his parents that he's going to go do a writing course. And he enlisted himself into Yale. Just like that. I'm just going to go to Yale. Just easy peasy. Like it's nothing. Yeah. Which, I mean, I thought you had to be like super smart and a scholar and have like all the grades and, you know, have like a really pretty little resume there. But, and I thought it was kind of like expensive if you don't get a scholarship, but it doesn't seem (laughs) to be. Money doesn't seem to be an issue here for him. He's moving so much. Um, so, okay. Um, he is packing up. He's getting ready. He's pretty excited about this because Jody's going to be so excited when he gets there. He's going to save her. He's going to be right. He's going to be her knight in shining armor. And she's not going to even know what hit her. No, oh, she's really not. <laughs> she's going to be surprised, all right? Yeah, uh, for different reasons, but. So he gets to Yale and he starts writing her letters and he puts them in, I guess, maybe like a P.O. box or a mailbox, um, whatever they have on campus. And, but that's not enough. He ends up actually finding her phone number and decides maybe I should call her. The letters, it's just not enough. It's not enough. She needs to hear my voice. She needs to hear my convictions through the phone. I'm going to call her. Let's call her. So he gets up the nerve and he calls her. And uh, by the way, she is very polite when she's talking to him, listening to him. And he says, she says, I don't know you. And I'm having a hard time having a conversation with you because this is dangerous and it's kind of rude. And this is like not things how not how things are done. And I'm sorry, um, but I just don't feel comfortable talking with you. And she kind of brushes him off and she's trying to like just be so nice about it. And he does try to convince her. He's like, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not dangerous, you know. And so they hang up and he's like, no, I get it. We have to meet in person. She has to see me in person. That's the only way she's going to know that I am not a dangerous person. I mean, I wrote her letters and now I made the phone call. The next step is for her to see me. (laughs) Crazy town. Okay. Okay. Let's think outside the box. What can I do to impress Jody? What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? I know what I have to do. What would Travis Bickle do? I have to assassinate the president of the United States. That's going to win her over. Somebody call a psychiatrist for this man because the jump from calling her to assassinating someone is just so wildly huge. 
or to like you know moving from Colorado to California to New Haven like yeah just all over the place and then like what do you do but like hi so you don't know me but I fell in love with you when you were just a 12 year old prostitute (laughs) what an opening so um he starts talking sorry he starts stalking and trying to figure out where President Carter is. And that was his mission. He was going to take him out. He finds out that Mr. Carter is going to be doing a campaign appearance in Nashville, Tennessee. So he heads to the airport. He's getting ready to go. But then security alerted because there's guns in his handbag. And they confiscated all his guns. And he was ordered to pay a hefty fine of $62. And uh, he wasn't able to take his gun. So, well, now we got to think of a new plan. Hmm. Can you imagine today? We're just going to take your guns and you have to pay a fine. I don't think so. Um, Definitely would be different nowadays. And so, yeah, that didn't work out. And John's like, okay, I guess I'm going to have to move back home to Colorado with my parents again. And he is now back at his parents' house. And they're kind of starting to see some red flags. Like, what the hell is going on? Okay, like, um, maybe he didn't really go to Yale. Do you think that, like, didn't really happen either? So they think maybe John should take some therapy. Yeah, think? I think he definitely would benefit from that. So they talk to a psychiatrist and they basically get him all set up. And they say that he's got just like social adolescence and he's underdeveloped, which basically they're saying you need to stop letting him move back home, stop taking care of him, make him stand up on his own two feet, make him figure out life on his own. Like that's good advice, but also I feel like he needs more than that. We're getting there. <laughs> um John writes a letter to the FBI and it states there is a plot. It's going to be in either December or January. He has to check his availability. He's not sure yet. He doesn't want to totally (laughs) nail it down. Um, But there's a plot to abduct Jody Foster. There will be no ransom. I do not want any money. This is for romantic reasons. I do not wish to get further involved. Take this information and do what you wish. But the FBI pretty much did nothing. I mean, they kind of sat on it. They chalked it up to like, whatever, this guy's crazy. I mean, they did tell the door management, like of the dorm rooms um, or college. I don't know who they told, the head headmaster. I don't know what they call it. But they told somebody and, you know, Jodie Foster, I don't know. She didn't take it serious. But if I was her, I kind of would because... I would feel like that would be like, dude, I got these letters and this guy did call me. Like, to me, I feel like I would have triggered something. Yeah. Um, Like, you would think she would be a little bit nervous after all that stuff happening. And you'd think she would know immediately that it was that guy. Yeah. But I don't know if the FBI was like, we're not really too worried about it. So she wasn't. Um, Maybe she just chalked it off to like, okay, I've done some TV. Maybe it's just that crazy. I don't know. Right. So after that, people started actually wondering if the therapist missed a lot, like um, 
But I also feel like if you don't share with your therapist, if you don't tell them what is actually going on in your life, I don't know how they can help you fix things either. So if he's not talking about his obsession with Jody or wanting to kill the president or feeling like if he's not opening up, then I don't know how, I don't know. I don't know how much they can help you, but I guess I don't have a degree in psychology either. So I don't know. Yeah, but that's true. If they have no idea about any of this, I mean, they're not like psychic mind readers, so they're not going to know every detail. So they're just going with the immaturity after that. It went from really wasn't getting a lot of love as a kid to he's being coddled too much. So I feel like that's kind of a contradictory, like, well, which one is it? Right. Um, It doesn't get much better. It's 1980 in December and he spirals again and he hears about John Lennon being shot and killed in New York. So John did what any normal person would do. And he hopped on a train to New York and went to the vigil for John. And then he flew back home. His parents picked him up at the airport. His parents noted that he looked rough and he was in a bad shape, very disheveled. And I quote, his dad says, I looked at him and he said, do not make any jokes, dad. I'm still in mourning. I'm very depressed. And his dad just looked at him. Okay. <laughs> now, this is where it gets a little crazy. So after looking into the John Lennon murder and hearing about Mark David Chapman, he found himself relating to him and thinking he was a lot like him. So he went and bought the exact same revolver that Mark used to kill John Lennon. And this is where I think it's crazy for me, because if you idolize someone like... Um, John Lennon and Chapman killed the guy that you idolized, you think you would have anger issues towards that guy, not wanting to relate to him and buy the same weapon. And like, I don't know, like if somebody killed I don't want to say a celebrity name because I don't want to jinx it, but like Ryan Reynolds is my dude. And if somebody shot Ryan Reynolds, I wouldn't go and emulate and buy the same gun and be like, oh my God, I would want to find the person that did it and take him out. <laughs> like I'd have so much, yeah. ang- so much anger for the person that killed the person that I idolize, you know? Yeah. It's kind of twisted that he's like looking at it from that other perspective where it's like, why why would you want the same thing as the guy who killed somebody that you're like, that you like love? Right. I mean, I guess I don't idolize Ryan. I'm more just infatuated and in, in love with him. <laughs> I guess idolize would be going back to like Julia Roberts. Like I idolized her. If somebody would have hurt her, I would have been like so pissed. Like, right. You know, I don't know. It's I, so I guess I don't get that part unless he just like the, it goes back to mental illness, you know, I guess. Yeah, honestly, um, I think that's definitely the root of it. So Hinkley decides he needs an outlet. So he starts shooting more often and he did target practice and he just um, let his obsession with Jody grow bigger. Uh, so he would go to New Haven and he would go back and forth quite a bit. 
uh, he was leaving letters in her mailbox at school. So that wasn't really helping him though, because I mean, he's in love with her and she's not really responding to these letters. Um, so now it's back to the point of what would Travis Bickle do? <laughs> Remember? Hmm. Taxi driver, New York. Um, he got it. I'll have sex with a prostitute. So he goes and he has sex with a young teen prostitute, which um, at one point they asked him and he said that um, he didn't enjoy that very much. Hashtag gross. Yeah. Disgusting. So now it's 1981. It's Valentine's Day. And what do you do for the person you're in love with? Um, and in this case, he really didn't have a significant other. Um, John Lennon's not around anymore. So his depression is kicking in. So he took a cab to the Dakota. That was the hotel where John was murdered. And the plan was he was going to kill himself on the stairs in the exact same spot that John Lennon died. But then once he got there, he changed his mind. Huh, that would have been so poetic. <laughs> I literally was going to say the same thing. I was like, wow, very poetic. <laughs> so February 27th, he has a therapy appointment and the therapist recommended that to his parents, it's time that John flies to coop. He's being coddled too much and you guys are taking care of him. He needs to go kick him out. Tell him he's got to stand on his own two feet. And that's what his parents do. Was it the best decision or not? They're not sure. Did it play into his future endeavors? Probably. Uh, but they told him, you're not welcome here. You can't live here. Here's a couple thousand dollars. Get yourself a place. Figure it out. Man up. Okay. So now he's got to figure out life. He's got to get a new plan. Okay, new plan. Let's go to New Haven. Let's go get Jody. Um, and he decided he's going to just commit suicide in front of her. That'll show her how much he loved her. What the hell? Or another option is murder-suicide. He can kill her and then kill himself. Then they'll be together in the afterlife. And then that's going to impress her. Although you may go to hell and she may not. So there's also yeah, that so option. Definitely don't think they would be in the same uh, place. <laughs> so door number three. Let's go to Washington, D.C. Um, he's seen in the paper that now President Reagan is president. Um, he's going to be giving a speech. Uh, this is another perfect opportunity to impress Jodie Foster. And of course... That's what Travis Bickle would do, right? That's the same style. Got it. So John writes a letter to Jody stating, I will admit to you that the reason I'm going ahead with this attempt now is because I cannot wait any longer to impress you. I've got to do something to make you understand. However, Jody did not get that letter. Um, John never got around to mailing it. Don't you hate when that happens? You like you fill it out, you put a stamp on it, and then you just keep forgetting to put it in the mailbox. <laughs> I do that all the time. Uh, the letter was actually found on John Hinckley when he was arrested. So now it's March 30th, and he gets around to the Reagan campaign or speech. 
Um, it's about 1.30. He knew where he was going to be speaking. So he's just chilling. It's about 1.45 now. He's getting sights on Mr. Reagan. Uh, Ronald comes out. He's waving. He actually waved at John. John seen it, waved back at him. Bizarre. It's now 2.25. Reagan is exiting the hotel. He's surrounded by Secret Service and bodyguards. Hinkley starts to move closer towards Reagan. He shouts out, Mr. President, Mr. President. And Ronald turns around. John is kneeled down in the marksman position and takes six shots. One of the Secret Service men was actually able to tackle Hinkley. And the creepy part was, or not creepy, but just like crazy is that Hinkley was still trying to shoot the gun, even though he fired all the rounds as he was being tackled. Like he just, the rage. Clicking it? Yes. Oh gosh. Like, I don't know. So like Chapman, um, I keep going back to this coincidence. He did not mean, he did not attempt to take off. He just waited. He sat there. Um, clearly a dozens and dozens of witnesses saw the shooting and it was caught on tape. I mean, not like cell phone viral, okay? But we did have camcorders back then. <laughs> and it's at this point now that clearly everybody can see the video of Hinkley being the shooter. Um, so he went through a bunch of psychiatric evaluations. His lawyer is telling him, you know, there's only one option. We have to play the insanity. The government did have him analyzed and they agreed that he was perfectly sane. Um, he knew what he did was wrong. He's very capable of understanding everything. However, they stated he had a moment of insanity while he was doing the shooting. And I'm sorry I call bullshit because if this was to happen today, either he would be dead at the scene or he would never see the light of day. Yeah, it but, would definitely go down much differently. Yes. Um, I mean, I guess I don't know. I guess I, I don't know. We'll keep going um, when it comes to the mental health stuff or like the insanity stuff. But I feel like if he knows it was wrong and he knows he shouldn't do it, then was he really insane when he did it? Or in that moment, was he really mentally insane with this obsession to win Jody that he wasn't thinking straight. I don't know. It's so heavy. So this is the nutso, like seriously. So Hinkley demands, he demands that Jody Foster testifies at his trial. If they cannot get Jody Foster to come and testify, he is not going to cooperate. He's not going to talk. He's not doing anything. Like, what the hell? Like, I just have to wonder what she's thinking about all this when she hears this. Well, I'm thinking, like, are you serious? Because you can do life in prison and you know the penalty of what's going to be thrown at you. And me as your lawyer, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to save your ass. But if you want to be a crybaby and sit in your cell, like, oh, my gosh, fine. Like, your life, dude. Like you're to try to demand Jody Foster. Like I'm here to save you. Like I'm doing you the favor. You're not doing me the favors. Like, yeah, it's just ridiculous that he even thought that he could try and do that. But believe it or not, his freaking lawyers came through 
And after who knows how many negotiations, strings pulled, what the fuck not. But Jodie Foster agreed to do it. I'm sure they put like a ton of pressure on her because like, you know, she did not want to do that. Oh, for sure. And it's going to be like in a closed room with only the lawyers, the judge, Jody and Hinkley. It's a closed session. Um, they're going to tape it. And then later, later, they'll show it at the trial. So it'll be put into evidence, but she's not going to actually be at the real trial. So when John got the note that um, this was going to happen, he was so stoked. He couldn't believe it. He called his dad and he's like, mom, dad, you don't understand. She's going to be in the same room as me, like Jody Foster and me in the same room. Can you believe this? He's like so hyped about it. Like, dude, she's testifying against you. <laughs> like, <laughs> she's not like sticking up for you. Um, so with everything that's going on, and he's just like, oh my God, like, I'm gonna meet Jodie Foster. We're gonna fall in love. We're gonna have kids. This is gonna be serendipity. Bro, no, no, this is not your serendipity moment. <laughs> No, 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 it's not. So it's March 30th, 1982, one year to the day after the assassination attempt went down. Hinkley was driven to the courthouse in Washington to where Jodie Foster was going to be given her testimony. Needless to say, the testimony didn't really go the way John thought it was. And he was livid. He was outraged. He had like not heard the words that he thought he was going to hear. He couldn't believe it. Jodie Foster didn't even look at him. She didn't wave at him. She didn't make eye contact with him. It's like he didn't even exist in that room. So after her testimony, right before he leaves, he took a ballpoint pen and he whipped it at her and said, Jodie Foster, I will get you. Oh my gosh. And then he got up and tried to run out of the courtroom, but the security and the police and all the people, um, they grabbed him and escorted him out of the room pretty quickly. A poor Jody, because first of all, she didn't even want to be there in the first place. Basically was like forced to be there. And then he, he does that to her. Like, I feel horrible for her. Yeah, she's probably like, just get me the fuck out of here. Like, and <laughs> do not ever call me again. Yeah. Changing my phone number. Seriously. Um, I'm really glad she did the movie Panic Room. Yeah. Because she, hopefully her house has a panic room at this point. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure that like she just related very hard to that in that movie. So now it's April 27th, 1982, and it's time to pick the jurors for the trial. And it's going to be hard because, I mean, the assassination of a president, where do you go to keep that under the rug? Like, it's worldwide news. It's, even if they moved out of D.C., no matter where you go, people are going to know that Mr. Reagan had an assassination attempt on him. So, at the end of the jury selection, it ended up being seven women, five men. Eleven of them were African-American and one white person. And knowing what, you know, he went through in the past um, and talking about the college and, you know, his racism there, um, they asked him, 
all of them, if they could be partial to racism. They all said they had no problem with it. And so the trial begins. It's pretty much cut and dry. Reagan was shot. His servicemen was shot. Hinkley was seen doing it. So honestly, the defense, they didn't even try to defend. They're like, right. Yeah, he did it, like, for sure. Um, they stated with their witness um, that two of them actually were hit. Uh, Secret Service Timothy McCarthy and also police officer Thomas Delhanty. They also had a surgeon testify on behalf of the Secret Service, uh, James Brady, uh, that he had suffered brain injury from the shooting as well. And he did survive, but he has paralyzed half of his body and he'll never be able to walk or function on half of his side of his body again. Uh, they showed that it was premeditation. They actually showed the video of Hinckley earlier in the year at the Carter campaign. And they're like, yeah, different president, but the motive was totally the same. They put his mom on the stand. Um, they questioned her and she's like, you know, how do you know that your kid is mentally ill? Um, they talked about all the letters, the imaginary girlfriend, the Jodie Foster stuff. Um, and basically it's just like, well, a lot of it, he wasn't living at home. So he would tell us stuff, but like, I don't think it's the same as if it was, you know, unfortunately I don't want to compare it, but so the Crumbly story is pretty big. Right. Um, and the parents are getting a lot of heat for it because he did ask for help. He did live at home. He was a child um, right. and all the signs were ignored. This guy was a grown man who was living across the country for some of it. So I don't know how a lot of it should be put on the parents. Maybe some red flags were missed, but if he's not at home, it's hard to tell, you know? Yeah. If it's not like in front of their face and he's also hiding a lot and it's not like obvious to them, you can't put a lot of the blame on them because how are they just going to know that this is going on? If like nobody tells them or if they can't see it. And the therapist would even give him, you know, saying like, okay, so he was misdiagnosed. Um, so maybe that was some of it was put on the therapist. Uh, they questioned his dad about, you know, cutting him off and giving him money and telling him to leave. And his dad's like, well, that's what the doctor said to do. Like, how do you, if a doctor has, you know, professional opinion, how do you fight with that? You know, like, so that's tough too, you know. Uh, Jack did admit that he was probably the biggest failure that he let John down and he probably should have not have listened to the therapist and he should not have done what they told him to do. But again, if it's a doctor's giving you advice and telling you so what needs to happen, you do it. So he was kind of put in a bind. Um, unfortunately, he does feel like it's his fault and that's what pushed John over the edge. He also begins to say that he feels it's his fault because he... Um, didn't know everything that was going on. And he said that if he could trade places with John right now, he would do it for his son. Next, he testified, next to text, testify, whew, that was a hard one. Um, <laughs> Dr. Harper, um, who is also a therapist, and he goes on to say how he was diagnosed um, 
and said that in the beginning he was on, he diagnosed John as unmotivated and needed some behavioral therapy. But furthermore, he now sees that it was a misdiagnosis and he was wrong. Clearly there was more of a mental health issue um, that needed to be addressed and they were missed. During the trial as well, um, in evidence, there was some kind of essay or a book on paper, something that Hinckley had wrote in the 80, and Hopper insisted that they read a little bit out of it. And Hinckley had wrote about a relationship that he had dreamed about um, that went absolutely nowhere and stated in his mind that he was on the breaking point. And Hopper admitted that he failed to see the warning signs and he takes a little bit, takes it a little bit more serious or should have taken it a little bit more serious than was taken. And the doctor did proceed. Um, that he did not know about the Reagan. He did not know about Jody Foster. Um, he had no idea about the handguns or of him even owning a gun at all. And that's where I was kind of saying, like, if they don't know about any of that stuff, like, how do you diagnose it though? So Right. But again, I don't have a degree in that profession, so I can't say. Uh, he did testify saying that John Hinckley was a very intelligent man. He actually had an IQ of 113. He began also to go back that, you know, saying what I just said, if you're not open in therapy, um, it's hard for doctors to help you if you don't tell all your truths. Um, so it's at the point of the trial. <laughs> They bring in the TV and they introduced the position of Jodie Foster. Um, and it's at this point, John was acting very bored at his trial. He's just sitting there, slumped over, whatever. But when they bring the TV and Jody goes on, he sits up, he perks up. He's got all his attention now, like still obsessing, like, Seriously, like all oh, this is going on, and you're okay. Um, yeah. So Jody goes on to state that she first she got the love letters. Time she got the last set of letters, they were more distressed. Um, and I'm just thinking, like, is that like a nice way to say like they were creepy and weirded, and like she I should move, but she probably just worded it nicer. Um, she continued to say that she would get them and she would turn them into the dean of college. Um, she read one of the letters for the court. It was dated March 6, 1981. Jody Foster, love, just wait. I will rescue you very soon. Please cooperate. Signed JWH. And they asked her if she had seen or heard anything like that before. Yes. In the movie Taxi Driver, Travis Bickle sends this to Iris's character in a very similar letter. Next question. In regards, um, in respect to, you know, John, um, do you remember of seeing him in person before? No. Do you ever... Did you ever respond to any of the letters that John sent you? No, I did not. Did you ever invite his approaches? No. How would you explain your relationship to John Hinckley? I do not have any kind of relationship with John Hinckley. 
After Jody answered that question, John jumped out of his chair, ran out of the courtroom in rage. However, he didn't get very far because U.S. Marshals tackled him again. Um, so the doctor, now they call the doctors and the psychiatrists and they bring all them in. They bring them on the stand. They, you know, listen to their opinions, their evaluations on Hinckley. And they proceed to say that John, um, one of the doctors testified that they thought John was suffering from schizophrenia, which again was the same as David Chapman. And they said that there was four big symptoms that would go along with this diagnosed. Then capability of being normal, of emotional arousal, autistic retreat from reality, depression, including suicidal features, and then basically incapable of having any social bounds. They would go on to say that due to Hinckley having lack of conviction of who he is from different characters, movies, books, um, he all the things that he would obsess over, taxi driver, um, he's seen it 15 times. He was obsessed with Travis Bickle. Uh, there is The Catcher in the Rye, Holden Caulfield. This book, ding, 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 was recovered in his hotel room after he was arrested. Um, same as Chapman. Uh, falling in love with Iris, she was a character in a movie he was not capable of or could not figure out the reality versus fictional, that Iris was just a character. Um, Jodie Foster was separate. She was just a young girl going to college. Another big part of Hinckley's losing a grip on reality was the murder of John Lennon. Um, it got to him. John, again, was obsessed with John. Um, he took a lot of personalities from John. And when John was murdered, he felt alone. He felt like, what does this mean for me now? Like, what do I do now? So maybe in a way, he thought a piece of him had died too that day. They found a recording that Hinckley did on New, York, New Year's. And it was about John Lennon. And in the recording, it states, John Lennon is dead. The world is over now. The world will be insanity. What is left of the world with no John Lennon? And he talks about how, like, do I even want to survive the next few days? Will I survive? What will the next days be without John Lennon? He goes on to ask, how will people want to live in the world with no John Lennon? He says he still thinks about Jodie Foster every day. It's just Jodie Foster and John Lennon on his mind. And he goes on to say that he thinks that John Lennon and Jodie Foster are bound together in his mind. And I don't know how those two bind together, but again, we're not talking about someone who thinks in a world of reality. <laughs> right. Delusional world, more likely. They had another doctor come in and confirmed what kind of thoughts... Um, they had about Jack severing ties with his son and, you know, John really like having his cracker slip off his cheese. Like, was this like, what kind of reality does this hold? And within a couple of days, the assassination attempt took place. Um, so the doctors would go on to say that stating that Hinckley was very capable of understanding 
intellectually he is com that he committed this crime and he knows it was wrong. He knew what he did was wrong. He knew very clearly that he should not have let that happen. However, emotionally, he was not capable of understanding. The emotion of it is not there. Um, he was just had a different focus. And to do this, he basically with his dream to get his dream woman to make his love fantasy come true, killing the president was the only way that was going to make that happen. The people that got shot, they were, I just don't know, a means to an end. They were just players um, that had to make this dream world come true. Any delusional thoughts that was in a hundred percent belief that Travis Bickle was talking directly to him on the screen. He believed a hundred percent that he was becoming Travis. They did ask him if they thought he could be faking. The doctors replied with most people who fake an illness almost routinely state that they hear voices in their head and Hinkley passed that test. He did not hear any demons or any kind of voices. So with that, the doctor stated that it was just lack of emotion, um, basically just insane. Um, the next part's crazy to me, but the defense, they were like, okay, do you remember um, in elementary school, like, you remember when you see like the TVs rolling on that car and you just knew like it was going to be a fun day. It's going to be a movie like <laughs> but the VCR is all on that. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah. So they're in court and uh, I don't know like if the defense was just running out of defense things, but they begin to roll a TV card in and People are like, what's happening here? And they proceeded to play the entire movie of Taxi Driver. The whole thing? For the jurors, yes. Damn. Um, and I'm like, did they pass out popcorn and drinks? Did they do like the MJR clap? Probably not because <laughs> that wasn't a thing. But it's a shame because everybody likes the MJR clap. Um, and like the prosecutors were like, we didn't prepare for this. Um, so I guess we're just going to wing it. And then like, also like, do we get a movie to rebuttal? <laughs> like, right. <laughs> um, so defense, of course, are fighting that he is not insane and basically stating that his actions are based on him having um, more of a personality disorder. Instead of schizophrenia or manic, they said he was basically a rich kid who was bored manipulative, lazy, but that was just the beginning of some of the drama in the courtroom. Prosecutors go on to pick up the gun and the one that he used in the shooting and he's waving it all around. And he's like, this is the gun that he used and he's yelling and he's pointing it all across. And I mean, a little bit of out of control. Like you need to calm down. You're being too loud. <laughs> So then, of course, the defense gets in. They're all animated as well. And he starts yelling, John is pathetic. He's a pathetic life. He's going, meanwhile, he, he's just telling, like, basically, like, how crazy and pathetic John is. 
And John's just like covering his face and he's actually shaking and he starts to cry. And these lawyers are like blazing guns and yelling. And it's just like, oh my God, this is becoming like a three ring circus in this courtroom. And I'm like, by the way, lawyer, you're like breaking your own client. Okay. <laughs> like literally you've already broken, you know what I mean? But, um, so, I mean, he did show emotion there. Uh, overall, the trial went on for eight weeks and the juror had three days. They come up the verdict. Hinkley was essentially had 13 counts and the jurors um, had all the exact same verdict and all the accounts. Not guilty by reason of insanity. What the fuck? After he got acquitted, he immediately went to St. Elizabeth Hospital in Washington and he checked to checked in to stay there until he could prove to society that he could join a world in reality as a normal human being. Now, how long would you say, like, close to never? Yeah, pretty much. Um, it's December 17th, 2003. The judge awarded Hinkley unsupervised visits to his parents' house. He actually got to go to his parents outside the hospital, stay for a couple nights, and then come back, which is pretty ballsy, dude. Like, are we sure about this? Um, then in 2007, they sent a request to the judge to see if he could stay at his parents' house for a month at a time. That was actually denied. Like they said, um, we're not, excuse me, we're not uh, able to do that. We're not capable of seeing if we could do all the things to prepare him for that. Um, so we're doing baby steps and that's like a big boy step and we're not there. Um, <laughs> so that was denied. Although they said that he was doing very well. He was a model patient. He was um, no trouble, just. But yeah, we're, we're not going to do that. It's now July 2016, and a judge has confirmed he believed John is no longer a threat to society, and he did all the steps he needs to come back out and join society as a whole. In September in 2016, he was a free man, but there are conditions. Um, the conditions are he must abide by, and one of them is he has to stay in Washington, D.C. or Southern Virginia, which is mind-blowing to me because the White House is in D.C. And like every four years, maybe eight, um, new presidents move in and out of there. Um, and But there's always a president there. And why would you not want him to do the opposite? Like you have to move away from the White House not stay near it yeah you'd think they would put him somewhere like far away as possible i mean just pick a random state like you have to move to montana or you know texas or i don't know idaho what happens in idaho you know what i mean like <laughs> so he's not allowed to have any contact with past or present by the way, no offense to any of those other states. I was just picking random states. Um, he, he's not allowed to have any contact with past, present, um, 
candidates or any relationships with presidents or family members of presidents. Um, he is no longer to have any associations with Jodie Foster. This is laughable, sorry, but he's no longer to have any kind of relationship with celebrities at all. He can no longer watch any TV or movies that have violence in them, which how do you monitor that? Like, in the 80s. Well, no, I'm sorry, 2016 now. But still, like... So, yeah, even less monitoring. Like, how are you supposed to, like, tell if he's watching that stuff or not, if he's just, like, a free man? Yeah. So, I mean... Maybe on the TV, but they don't know what he's getting from Blockbuster. Right. Um, so, yeah. Um, and if I'm Jodie Foster, I guess, you know, like I said, I'm going to be happy that I did Panic Room. And I'm going to make sure I have one in my house just to be sure. And also, <laughs> um, she is very openly gay. So... Maybe Hinkley will get the hint, like, I really am not the man for her. No offense. Right. Hopefully he uh, realizes that at this point now. So with this being said, um, there was an outcry across America when he was found not guilty. Um, and things were changed. They want harsher punishments. Um, make it not so easy to be like, oh, I'm crazy. And then get off for murder. And then, you know live your life. Uh, basically it states that, uh, the past, uh, let's say states, the past day law. Basically it's shifting the burden of mental insanity from the prosecutors to defendants stating that they have to have more proof. And while other states have passed the law stating that you are still found guilty with a side of mental health issues. Um, so there's been a lot of changes to the law. And uh, yeah, you can't just say I'm crazy and be on your way. Right. So what do you think, Kay? Did they get it right or did they get it wrong? Like, was it better that he just went through a shit ton of mental health society training fixer-upper? Or do you think he should have been in prison? I think he definitely, both, I think he definitely should have been in prison and also getting mental health treatment while in prison. I don't think that he, like, should have just been, like, free living his life. Like, oh, you just can't watch violent movies. Like, that's all. That's your punishment. Slap on the wrist kind of thing. I think he obviously said he knew what he did was wrong. So it's like he was aware of the situation not like he was completely like out of his mind like blackout crazy so he had some choices that he made himself and i think that he really wasn't punished enough for those choices so you think he should be in prison yeah i think he should have went to prison i mean regardless on like the timeline of everything i think he should have went to prison and also gotten the mental health help while he was in prison I concur. Regardless if he's regardless if he's like still in it now or if he got out. Like like I said, I don't know about the timing or whatever, but I think he should have at least went. So John Hinckley today lives in an apartment um, with his cat who he had rescued, and he is just 
looking after him. He's looking after his mother. Um, she did end up passing away in 2021 as in 95. Um, but he is basically just hanging out there and he is making folklore music with his guitar. Hmm. He's got an album out. I don't think it's like, you know, Emmy winning. Yes. But so, yeah, he's just uh, living life with his guitar. Well, hopefully he's a lot more mentally sound and takes responsibility of what he did and knows fully that it was like completely crazy and wrong and just continues living his uh, quiet, peaceful life, not bothering anybody else. <laughs> yeah, so he's got a folklore music album. But could you, I don't, I guess I don't understand like how people like just forget like, I don't know. I guess maybe because the president didn't actually die, but I mean, almost. But still, he could have. Yeah, he could have. And, and lost the whole right side of his body. Right. He affected that guy's life for the rest of his life, honestly. So. And if that guy, if that guy didn't step in, he probably the president might have died. You know. Yeah. So I think if he died or if somebody died, then they for sure would have sent him to prison. I did have um, another one, but maybe I will see if Crystal wants to take it on next week or um, I can go back and do this one after Crystal does her story. Um, it does talk about another connection. It's another story of woman who was murdered had a copy of catching the rye as well um but we are out of time so we'll put it in our back pocket and we can we'll definitely talk about it though it was another tv actress from the 80s so crazy how many uh of these cases there are connected to that that book like weird i know i know it's so weird but I mean, I guess um, the big question is, Crystal. Do you? Uh, what do you think? Do you think Jodie Foster was impressed? <laughs> I so sorry, Mister John Hinckley. I don't think anything that you did impressed her. Maybe like the the amount of effort you went through was like, wow. I mean, he really like loved me but i don't think it was like impression uh maybe she's like this is why men are crazy maybe that's what yeah i think he turned her he turned her lesbian (laughs) he turned her lesbian when he's seen how crazy men are yeah i mean if someone did that to me i mean honestly i probably would maybe jump to that chip also probably kind of borderline like yeah i like both i like men i can appreciate a woman Hell no, man. Men are crazy. They've taken out presidents. Like, nope. Right. That that pushed her over the edge. She's like, okay, yeah, no. Woman for me it is. (laughs) Uh, Well, I'd love to sit here and keep talking about fun shit, but I have to actually go to work today. We actually did a morning recording instead of a night recording because 
well, it's just a packed weekend for both of us. So, but we made it work. Definitely. And I guess we will be back next week with something. <laughs> Another story. So thanks for sticking it through. Thanks for keeping up. And if you have a catcher in the rye or conspiracy coincidence opinion, uh, email us or hit us up. It's on our social on uh, Horror Wanna Crime on Facebook. There's already conversations happening about it. Feel free to join in and let us know. Hit us up. We want to know if there's even more craziness to this. Because the fact that there's already this many connected to it is just bonkers. I know. It's so crazy. Maybe we'll talk about a little bit more next week. In the beginning, we'll talk about some of those social answers. Um, but until then, we got to go. Stay creepy. Peace out. Bye. And that doesn't impress people. Don't kill presidents. No. Like... Brad Pitt, that's definitely impressing me, though.